we are continuing in First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. We're going to examine again some of the earlier part of the passage as we as we dive in. But where we left off was at the end of verse eleven. And you will realize as you hear this that it sounds very familiar. It sounds familiar because the theme is the same in this letter. The theme of being prepared for suffering. The theme of suffering for the sake of righteousness with joy. Realizing that God doesn't allow suffering in our life because He despises us, but rather he uses suffering in our life to purify us, to make us more like him. Suffering can be a blessing. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. There are truths that are spoken in such an incomplete way that they become lies. There are truths that are sometimes just spoken in an incomplete way and it becomes easy for Satan to take people off track. This passage points us to a truth that through this book of the Bible we can understand in whole. I join with brothers and sisters across the United States who are praying for revival for the church in the United States and for a revival that begins in the church and then leads lost people in droves to Christ. A powerful work of the Holy Spirit that brings people to repentance, to newness of faith, to understanding the one who died to pay the price for their sins. Yet over and over again, I read, see, hear, people say, guys, if we get this right, if we fix this problem that I've identified as the major blind spot of the church, then people will run towards Jesus. For anyone who thinks that if we just get things right, we can make America great and godly, 
that the broad road will be the one leading to heaven and the narrow road will be for those reprobates who are left. They don't understand what Jesus taught clearly and plainly. They don't understand the life of the early church. They don't even understand church history. We have been promised that if we are faithful and if we share the gospel perfectly, just as those at Pentecost did, some will come to saving faith. But there will also be mockers. We will be persecuted. Over and over again, I see stories of ex-evangelicals. Ex-evangelicals. And let me tell you the theme of their story, not in the way that they'll tell it. They refuse to bow the knee before Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords. Over and over, their story says, I don't like this part of the Bible, and if only you edit that out, then the church will grow. Really, guys, my heart is for the church. That's why I'm leaving, because I want everyone to know that if you could just edit the Bible and get these troublesome things culturally, these things that bother me, if you could reduce them, if you could eliminate them, the church will grow. It's a lie. By the way, it's an obvious lie, because for the last 50 years or more, there have been people who edited out culturally troublesome things from the Bible, and those churches did not grow. They withered and died. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. It edits us. We do not edit it. And when we share the gospel the right way, it will offend. It will anger people. It will cause people to slander us, to lie about us. It won't change the fact that it's the truth. It won't mean that we've done it the wrong way. There are megachurch pastors who write books about the way to share the gospel without offense. If you think that you can share the gospel without offense, then you don't understand what Jesus promised us about sharing the gospel. Yes, it is good news, but it's only good news if you grasp the bad news. And the bad news is what angers people, that there is a God and you are not him that you deserve hell because of your rebellion against God's law. But there's a better way. You can be forgiven of your sins. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It has been a pleasure of mine to speak to people in other countries, cross-cultural ministry. There's been opportunities to do cross-cultural ministry for me here in the United States. Lots of different cultures in our country. One of the most diverse countries in the history of the world, culturally speaking. But one of the things that has people have in common is that God designed us for love and community, and Satan desires that we live in shame and isolation. And when people find out about anything that's a universal human experience, it causes them to feel really encouraged. It's true in counseling. People believe that their challenges are unique, that no one else has ever faced that. That if people really knew the real them, they would be disgusted by them. 
they would turn away from them. If people knew the sins of their past, they could never accept them or love them. Those are lies. And when they hear about others who have gone through similar things, then they say, oh man, I feel so much better. The church in the United States has been excluded in many ways from the global experience of persecution that has been what the church faces where it faithfully proclaims the gospel. If you want to understand at a very fundamental level why churches emptied out in Europe, it's because the gospel was preached in such an inoffensive way that no one got saved and no one got offended. And to the extent that America looks like that, we will become more and more a post-Christian nation. A nation that only vaguely remembers the truths of the Bible and where the truth is exchanged for a lie over and over again as described in Romans chapter 1. So, church, beloved, beloved, start with that, that's who you are. You're loved by God and He loves you so much that He will allow you to experience fiery trials. They shouldn't be a surprise to you. Not if it comes upon you, but when it comes upon you. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Guys, this should be an internal question for us. If I'm not being insulted for the name of Christ, what am I doing wrong? If you're not insulted for the name of Christ, you're not being blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God doesn't seem to be resting upon you. Oh, Clayton, I, there's a lot of different reasons that that doesn't happen here. America is fairly positive towards Christians. A lot of liars in business put an ichthus on their sign because it helps them get more business. We're mostly Christian positive around here. All of that is true, but again, if the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, you're going to be insulted. Expect it. And expect it so much that you reorient the way that you're living, the way that you're sharing, the way you're speaking, if you're not experiencing persecution. But let none of you suffer. Now, let's, we're going to go into this list, okay? We can do this. It's, it's a, let's go ahead and do a hand raise, okay? We're going to go through a list of sins here. Go ahead and give me a hand raise. How many of you struggle, let none of you suffer as a murderer? How many of you struggle with murdering? Is that? Let none of you suffer as a murderer. Now, the Apostle Paul says, such were some of you, and in terms of the way that he persecuted the church, he was absolutely a murderer. He's more like a, a mafia head who ordered hits than a guy who personally was killing people, but it was the same thing. Who's a murderer. And if we rightly understand and discern rage and anger in our hearts, then when 
Jesus raises the standard and says, you have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, any man who looks at a woman lustfully committed adultery in his heart. You've heard it was said, do not murder. I say, any of you who hate. And we could all say, I think rightly, yes, I struggle with that. But this is talking about the actual act of murder. Murder is not something that many people in the church in America are struggling with. But a heart of hatred absolutely is. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. Evildoer, that's, that's broad, guys. I feel like we can figure out that. Yeah, we struggle as evildoers. How about this one, though? How did this get into the list? Or as a meddler. Is, are, are we bold enough to raise our hands about that? How many of you struggle with meddling sometimes? Being a meddler. What is sinful meddling? Well, we're going to have an example that shows some of that as we move forward. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, this verse is an important, powerful, beautiful verse. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Obey the gospel. Obey is kind of, isn't that one of those words that we should Christian market away from? Uh, we, look, we tested that. Uh, obey is not, mm, we're not liking that term. Obey, ugh. How about receive the gospel? How about uh, those who are blessed by the gospel? Even actually, we all like the, the word saved a lot. Let's use that one. Um, let's say um, those who are saved by the gospel, what will be the outcome for those who are not saved by the gospel? No. That's not the word. The word that's used is the word obey, obedience, and for the disobedient, they will be cut off and thrown into hell. For those who disobey the gospel, how can there be an obedience to the gospel? Isn't the gospel just good news? Yes, the gospel is good news that Christ came to save sinners. He saves us from ourselves, and we are no longer our own. We are bought with a price. So understanding the gospel is not just about understanding Jesus as Savior. It's absolutely, crucially about understanding Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord of our life. And, again, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Now, does that mean that I don't think the judgment begins with the house of God? No, it absolutely does mean that. But it means that if our only emphasis is on, well, judgment begins with the house of God, let's clean it up, church. Let's clean it up, church. One of the ways in which our church, the church, is failing is to not have an urgency to share the gospel with people who are going to hell. When they die, they will be in hell forever. Because that is true, there should be an urgency to our lives to share the good news with them. And how does meddling fit into that? Within the context of the church, we are supposed to be in each other's business. What, I thought, wait, are we, is meddling, doesn't that sound a lot like being in each other's business? What? What's, 
No, they're not the same. Accountability and meddling are not the same. But there's a biblical way of handling intervention, and meddling is not that way. But guys, what Christians so often waste so much time and energy on is trying to help non-Christians live like Christians. I have heard over and over again people talk about youth groups and just how sad it is that even though they had wonderful programs and laser light shows, bounce houses and rock climbing, that somehow those kids just didn't end up following the Lord. We're not sure what happened, but they fell away. Did they ever obey the gospel? Did they ever transform their lives? If not, then the therapeutic moralism that tells them don't have sex until marriage. Guys, don't have sex until marriage. It's a true fact for everyone, and you do better as a non-Christian if you obey it than if you're a non-Christian who disobeys it. But the sexual ethic should come underneath the umbrella of understanding that God loves us, that he designed us, that his plan for us is good, pleasing, and perfect, and that it's not a burden. A part of understanding what we're supposed to be sharing is to understand that for everyone in the family of God, drawing them to Scripture, to Scripture, to Scripture, to say, brother, sister, this is a sin I see in your life. I love you. I'm going to come directly and talk to you about it. I'm going to confront you about it because I want better for you. Is the right thing to do and then again, if they're unrepentant, to take it with another brother, sister, with them, and then to the church, to the eldership. That's because repentance is possible for Christians. But guys, for non-Christians, there is no purpose in meddling. If you do not claim the name of Jesus Christ, no one in the church should be trying to work on making you fit into a, a type of obedience that doesn't produce salvation at all. Would you guys guess that it's, it's harder? I know we're spread out, but you can yell, I guess. If we're socially distanced enough, you can yell. Do you think it's harder to convince a wildly immoral person that they're a sinner or a non-Christian who thinks that they're good that they need a savior. It's harder to convince the person who thinks they're good. Thomas, do you agree with that? It's, it's the person who thinks they're good who is so challenging. And guys, as I've had certain subcategories of people in various you know, uh, religious faiths that aren't Christian, the good guys and girls are the hardest to share the gospel with because they think that they're good. Meddling and being involved in an unscriptural way is also a distraction from what we should be doing. Oh, I love you, and you are a person who gives some of your money to help the needy. You're a person who's faithful to your wife. 
You're a person who pours into the life of your kids. And you're a person who's going to go to hell because you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Do you think that's offensive? Do you think that will provoke persecution? Of course it will. But guys, it's desperately what's needed. Now, as a church, we should be asking ourselves what we need to do, what we need to repent of, so that we can fulfill the Great Commission. But guys, most churches in America, as racial unrest rolled through America in the late 60s, did a terrible job of speaking out in a biblical way about the sin of partiality, the sin of racism. And they also did a terrible job at loving their neighbors and loving those around their church. And over time, churches in the cities emptied out and churches where there were no churches in suburbs of a bunch of people who didn't want to be around those folks in the city grew massively. Well, was there sin involved? Yes. Did everyone just never share the gospel? No, sometimes people shared the gospel a little, and then when they were met with opposition, with people who didn't like them, with people who pushed back, they said, well, we tried. We tried our best. We've done all we can do. It's just unfortunate. We tried to love this neighborhood, but the neighborhood didn't love us back. That's how much is a neighborhood supposed to love you if it's full of non-Christians? Not at all. Not even a little bit. And how much are you to love them enough and pursue them as Christ loved us? An unlimited amount based on his grace, his mercy, the people he's putting in your path. You're to love them again and again and again. As they mock you, as they slander you, as they despise you, you're supposed to love them. Wherever you are. Do our churches look like churches in America that love their neighbors? In so many cases, the answer is no. In so many cases, the answer is no. So that is an area where judgment begins in the house of God and there should be repentance an acknowledgement of past sin and turning away from it. Turning away from it to keep loving one another earnestly. Within the church, in the same chapter, if we're living in the Spirit the way God does, verse 6, In the same chapter, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be so keen. Be so self-controlled. The sake of your prayers will not be hindered. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. So, where does this start? The judgment begins in the house of God. The repentance begins in the house of God. The repentance is toward loving one another well. 
goodness, if anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. If you can't love people in your church well, then you don't know the love of Christ in a transformative way. But if you're doing that well, if you're doing that the way you're supposed to, then realize that when you see all manner of unrighteousness, Romans 1, verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Well, start there as a church and see that none of this is taking place within the church. But when it's taking place outside the church, there's no reason for us to be judging those who are living that way. Because what they need is the gospel. They need to be called to obey the gospel. They need to be called to bend the knee before King Jesus. For us who are in the church. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. 1 Corinthians 11.32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Expect persecution, expect suffering, expect that suffering to point you toward Jesus. Don't suffer for your sins. Suffer for His righteousness. That's the call to Christians. But when we look outside and say, Lord, send revival, send revival, it's not all a miracle of Pentecost with flames above our head. It's obeying the Great Commission to go and make disciples, teaching them. And as we all do the work of obedience, it's not for pastors, it's not for those with the gift of evangelism only, it's for all of us. We're going to encounter persecution. So, this is, has lots of themes in this book, but this passage is telling us that we are not to waste our time judging those outside the body, but we are to take time to judge ourselves and those within the body to seek repentance so that we might represent Christ well to the world. Well, we don't judge them in any way. No, we judge them in the most important way. You have no fruit in your life, and you're going to hell. Well, I mean, I think people would take it better instead of saying that. I mean, that's kind of over the line to say like, hey, I don't see a lot of fruit in your life. You seem like you, you might need some help from God. You don't seem like you're doing that well. Okay, that's not the truth. There is no righteousness apart from Christ. 
And every good person out there who thinks they're good is deluded and on their way to an eternity in hell. None are righteous in their own strength. So, passionately, seek righteousness within. Seek righteousness within the church. Let your heart break for those who don't know Jesus. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, 18, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? They'll spend forever in hell. Revival doesn't come to our country until our heart is broken for those who are going to go to hell. Persecution is missing for those of us who are more concerned about being liked than we are about the soul of people who need Jesus so desperately. For those of us who are more concerned with offending someone than we are with the fact that they need a savior. For lots of folks who are getting this wrong around the, the house on fire, which house is on fire, the hose to the fire. Let me make this metaphor. Everyone who is on their way to the eternal fires of hell doesn't need you to hang out with them. And they don't even need you and your own strength to try to bring a hose. The only thing that can rescue them, the only thing is Jesus. And they need to walk in obedience to Him. And anyone who doesn't know Him is going to hell. Our hearts need to be broken for those who don't know Him. Those who teach a false gospel. Those who promote Him ought not be promoted. We need to speak in love, pointing to Jesus, pointing to the one who made us ambassadors. But we are ambassadors of reconciliation, causing peace within the body, the kind of supernatural peace that says we don't sue each other because we don't need to, because within our church we can figure it out, because we're submitting to our elders, and all of us are submitting to God, and there's not a reason to sue each other. That's supernatural. I'm a lawyer, okay? That's supernatural. But outside, what causes offense? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We are called to be peacemakers. We are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And the word we bring from the king is this. You killed my son. And you deserve my wrath. But because of him, because of his sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your sins. Bow the knee before the king of kings. That is the message of the gospel. That is a message that offends. That is a message that will bring us suffering. But that's the only message that will bring salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to honor and glorify you.
knowing that that will bring persecution to us, knowing that there's not a way to sell Jesus, that the world will say, thank you so much. We know that if we tell the truth, people will hate us. But we desire to share in your sufferings in order that you might be glorified. We thank you that we, through the power of the Spirit, were convicted of the truth that we deserve hell. We pray that within the church, within the body, we will examine ourselves. The judgment begins within the house of God. We pray for repentance in any areas of unrepented sin. Lord, we pray that we will turn to you and follow you and bring a zeal in our hearts for the lost, a zeal in our hearts for those who are going to hell. Help us to boldly proclaim the truth. Give us a love that won't let people die without speaking, without speaking out and speaking into their lives. And we want to have the heart that you did, a heart that you have now that is not for one, that is not for nice people, that is not for kind people, but a heart that loves your enemies. Give us that same heart, and we'll be careful to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.